Hey, everybody that listens to Superhumans at Work, know that all of these episodes are recorded with a live studio audience. Mind Valley members get a chance to join these sessions with the author themselves while we record these sessions. And at the end of every show, they actually get to participate in a Q&A session as well. If ever you're interested in joining Mind Valley All Access and become a member yourself, you'll get access to all the incredible courses from Mind Valley and so much more to be involved with Superhumans at Work, the Mind Valley podcast, and all the other incredible features when you become a member. We are disrupting the way that education works for the 21st century and we want you to be a part of it. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman so you can learn more about this incredible offer, which will cost you less than $2 a day. That's mindvalley.com forward slash S-U-P-E-R-H-U-M-A-N. Now, let's get started with the show. What would happen if the money that goes into business investment went into the nonprofit world, people who are really trying to help society? Well, he was 10 years behind his time because right now there is a tsunami of capital that is heading towards the nonprofit world where people want to get a dual return in their money. I want to get an interest rate in my return, but I also want to do good with my money. And something like one third of the investments in the world right now have a social kind of plan or objective, if you will. Now, put that in perspective, if 1% of the investment dollars in this country were dedicated to social causes, that would double the amount of charitable giving in the United States every year. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders, rewriting the rules of high performance at work. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mind Valley podcast. Hi, everybody. This is Jason Mark Campbell. Welcome back to Superhumans at Work. We have a fantastic conversation coming up for you today where we're going to talk about something that we haven't really spent a lot of time as Superhumans at Work. But knowing that you are somebody that is focused on being your best self, knowing that you're trying to make an impact in the world, the world of nonprofits and building them in a smarter way is a key component that you'd probably want to get involved with. Whether you're looking to donate time, maybe you're looking to start one yourself, or maybe you're already involved as a board member within any of the nonprofits. What are some of the ways that they can be more successful, more resilient, and more impactful in the process? I have two incredible individuals that are joining me today. Matthew D. Craig, who's a vice president of business banking at J.P. Morgan Chase, has been involved with nonprofit for many years, is a person that wants to advocate for more people that want to get involved in nonprofit and giving them better ways to be more effective when they get into the field. I also have David J. O'Brien, who has enjoyed a career in the for-profit sector for over 45 years, has now switched into going into the nonprofit sectors and really being able to share a lot of the knowledge that he has generated in the for-profit sector to support nonprofits, maximizing their impact. Together, they've went ahead and built the book, Building Smart Nonprofit, a Roadmap for Mission Success. We're going to dive deeper into this concept why it's so relevant, especially after a year such as COVID-19 that hit us in 2020. How do we make sure nonprofits really get to thrive and make the difference that we want them to make? David, Matthew, welcome to the column. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Now, I'd be curious to kick off right with a question, which is you both had a background in a for-profit industry, and now you're here. We have this book that was released around building smart nonprofits. I'd be curious to know, what was your own motivators and why is this book so important today? First, a little background on the genesis of the book, and I'll start with an admission, which as you alluded to, Jason, that neither David or I have worked a day for a nonprofit. 
but we have worked and we continue to work with many nonprofits and organizations as advisors, board members, and volunteers. And we've also attended many of the ubiquitous scalas and golf outings that organizations are famous or perhaps infamous for. The setting, the food and drink and conversations are flowing and everybody's dressed up and having a good time. But if you take a second and look at the staff, you notice that they're exhausted from months of planning and many of them haven't been able to do their real jobs or focus on you know what's most impactful or how to deliver the most impact at their organizations. And frankly, when you look at all of the true costs, including the opportunity cost of the staff's time to put on these events, most of them don't make that much money. And at some point, we just thought there has to be a better way. Initially, our book was actually going to be called Requiem for the Gala, but fortunately, our publisher thought that title was a little too snarky and talked us out of it. So we changed to building smart nonprofits, and that's what we stuck with. But really, what we wanted to do was find out what makes a successful organization, defined in terms of both impact and longevity. In other words, what makes an organization sustainable? And to be honest, we were a little bit wary of the MBA types, which full disclosure were among, who claim to have all the answers. We knew we didn't. And so we started reaching out to those in the nonprofit sector, all stakeholders. We interviewed people from all over the country, CEOs, executive directors, board members, employees, those doing the day-to-day work of implementing programs, as well as the money people, the grant makers and foundations to really round out the perspectives that we heard. The goal was to get 360 degree feedback on what are the best practices to help nonprofits continue to do the good work that they're doing in their communities. And that's really what led us to seek answers from those in the sector that are operating at an incredibly high level. I love it. I'll throw a question to you, David, which is, you know, as you're writing a book about building smart nonprofit, you must have noticed so many operations that are not operating so smartly. Matthew already alluding to the whole gala being maybe overrated as a type of event to raise money. Do you have other big things that you've noticed in the industry that are not so smart yet accepted by so many nonprofit that probably we need to shine light on and change in the industry? Well, I think the industry... Yes, there are a lot of them, and there are nine chapters in the book talking about them. However, I can tell you that the real issue is that the world is in the nonprofit world is changing so dramatically right now. You know, there's a guy by the name of Dan Pallotta who wrote a book years ago, 10 years ago, called Uncharitable. And he made a statement in there and said, What would happen? It was a very controversial book, very good book. But he said, What would happen if the money that goes into business investment went into the nonprofit world, people who are really trying to help society. Well, he was 10 years behind this time because right now there is a tsunami of capital that is heading towards the nonprofit world where people want to get a dual return in their money. I want to get an interest rate in my return, but I also want to do good with my money. And something like one third of the investments in the world right now have a social kind of plan or objective, if you will. Now, put that in perspective, if 1% of the investment dollars in this country were dedicated to social causes, that would double the amount of charitable giving in the United States every year. It's just enormous and it's growing leaps and bounds. So what we tried to point out in the book was that the world is changing so dramatically. People think of the, you know, the poor nonprofit and people struggling and so forth. Yes, true in many cases but it's changing very, very quickly. Another example is the, you know, the issue of the so-called overhead myth, which you're probably familiar with. So for many, many years, people ranked the status of nonprofits as to how much money they spent in overhead. Well, that's great, but how do you pay for the furniture and the computers and so forth? I wanna see X dollars go right into the program. 
Well, you know, that doesn't give you a lot of resources for everything else. It's changing very dramatically. It's basically dying and it's dying very quickly, where people now are recognizing that the funders, the people who are making grant making available, looking and saying, we're in this together. We don't have all the answers. We're trying to solve some of the swampiest problems in the entire world. And we want to work in partnership with the people who are trying to help solve these problems. And instead of giving out grants for very specific purposes and for a period of time, they're making seed capital investments in these nonprofits to get them to the point where they can establish recurring revenue so they don't have to live from grant to grant, but are working with them on a partnership basis. It's called it's like a resetting of the golden rule. You know, the old golden rule was those that have the gold rule. That's now changing very, very dramatically. Major, major funders are going that route as opposed to thinking that they have all the answers. So it's just a wonderful time to be a nonprofit for these reasons. Are we labeling similarly the nonprofits into what I'm noticing, like the new emergence of B Corps? Is that being bucketed and becoming closer where even if you're a nonprofit, you're expected to generate revenue and operate more like a business? Is that the trend we're seeing? Well, I don't think it's necessarily operate more like a business, but what you're seeing is a trend where the distinctions are blurring. They're blurring, for example, and there's so many buzzwords you can use, social entrepreneurship, B Corps, hybrid organizations, and it's great. It's wonderful because what makes you say that you have to be a nonprofit or you have to be a for-profit business? Let's get the best of both worlds. My wife teaches social entrepreneurship. These young kids are basically young. They're not so young, but they're looking at, you know, I want to use business entrepreneurship tactics to solve the world's problems, to really make a difference. So it's great because it's all blending together. There's an article in Forbes magazine a couple of years ago called The Development of the Fourth Sector. Fourth Sector is a blending of the other three sectors. And frankly, it's having a dramatic effect. It's very exciting. I was just going to piggyback on what David said and to your point, Jason, about the type of organizations that can do meaningful work. There has been a phenomenal rise in these hybrid types of corporations, and many organizations are exploring different legal structures beyond the traditional 501c corporation to accomplish their missions. Sometimes being a hybrid corporation or even a for-profit corporation or having a, an LLC subsidiary of your nonprofit corporation can open different doors and lead to partnerships, collaborations, additional sources of capital. Really, a tax status shouldn't define the good you can do in the world, and structures should not dictate strategy. So leaders within existing nonprofits, as well as those looking to start them, I think we have a few of those folks with us here today, should really ask themselves, what is the right structure for what you're trying to accomplish and start from there? I love it, which actually brings it right to the question I wanted to drive it to, which is we have a lot of people, our Mind Valley members, who of course always join us live. And if you're listening to this on the podcast, you can always go to mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman if ever you want to be part of the live conversation where we talk a little more and have a QA with the members. But a lot of them are saying we want to start a nonprofit. Is the path a little different if you want to do it in a smart way? And are there a lot of mistakes that we should be already aware of if you want to go down the path of starting a nonprofit? That's an interesting question. What should you look for? Well, I think what you should look for, I'll go back to what I said before. You should not get caught in the old paradigms of it has to be done this way. 
Another example I can give you is, you know, we talked about the major capital that's going into the marketplace. Other examples are there are financing mechanisms that are designed to now to make it a lot easier to determine what the impact of your work is. The old days, you had your annual report and you show pictures of the smiling kids and you know everyone's happy, or you did double-blind studies, which took years to determine if you have any impact. Well, now with the advent of technology, as an example, and also coupled with people who want to invest in the sector, they're coming up with things like impact financing. Let's figure out a way, a very, very simple way of determining whether or not what you do is effective. So the first question is, you need to be able to do two things. One, prove that you have impact. Prove that you're not just putting out outputs, that you're really making an impact. And secondly, you need to be able to tell that story very, very effectively. We call that the ecosystem of funding. You need to have both of them. I'll give you a quick example. There's an organization we ran up to up in San Francisco, which had an operation inside San Quentin prison teaching inmates how to code. And the purpose was to reduce the recidivism. Well, they boiled down how to measure that impact to how many hours the inmate went to class. And they determined with some studies that if an inmate went to class for X number of hours, his or her chances of going back to jail were greatly improved. So they did a financing where investors put up money to basically fund the operation, and then they would get paid back by nonprofit investors, grantors, and so forth, based upon how many hours the inmates went to class. Well, very, very simple measurement. It was only an $800,000 transaction, and you don't have to spend a lot of time or spend years doing studies. You can tell right away. We call those things evaluation hacks. And once you have those, so you need to decide upfront how you're going to measure what your impact is. And if you do that, there are people who will be very, very happy to fund you. So I think that's the first thing to think about. I would say, especially in the access for information and kind of our Uber generation was the moment you book an Uber, you know where it is on the map. You can know when it's going to arrive. You have a countdown timer. It sounds like our expectations as consumers has become quite demanding. And the same would be reflected in the nonprofit sector. As you mentioned, just having to send a blind check, that seemed to be the old ways. We actually had a guest here talking about how philanthropy is changing as well. So in the past being that, you know, people would meet at that gala, sign a check, and then of course, get the pictures, annual reports, that's it. Now it seems like people, especially the younger generation, is looking to be more involved with the nonprofit, maybe be more invested in the results and getting these kinds of impact indicators. Is that one of the first parameters is trying to find a way that we can have some sort of leading indicator on the impact and that just changes the way you can relate to investors? I think that's part of it. And I'd also say, just going back to your point a second ago, Jason, about organizations and how can people get involved? Well, I think so often folks reflexively default to the, I want to start a nonprofit. And that's okay because it's always coming from a place of wanting to help, seeing problems in the world that need to be corrected or need solutions. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But one of the things that opened my eyes to some of the issues that we write about in the book was the first state of nonprofits event here in San Diego. And this is a a consortium, a gathering at a university here, the University of San Diego, that brought all stakeholders from myriad nonprofits within the area here to really just talk about the state of the sector. What are we seeing? What are donors looking for? How are we having the collective impact that we possibly could? Let's talk about ways to collaborate. And the statistic that was thrown out at this first event was mind-blowing to me. And that is that there are over 10,000 nonprofits here in San Diego alone 
we got problems, like every metropolitan area has got problems, but I'd like to think we don't have that many problems. So there are definitely organizations that are overlapping with other organizations in terms of tackling these systemic issues and these problems that we all agreed need to be addressed in some form or fashion. So I think the first question that folks looking to perhaps start a nonprofit should ask is, does the world need your nonprofit? Might there be other organizations out there that are doing great, impactful work that you can somehow augment with monetary help, with your intellectual capital, or start an organization that is complementary to what some other organization is doing and help that organization further their mission? Don't necessarily think that you have to start an organization from scratch, because what that does is it furthers the scarcity mentality and further strains resources that, let's face it, are finite in any community and takes away from dollars and capital that might go toward organizations that have been around a little longer, that might be operating a bit more efficiently or more effectively. So really think about that as you understand your marketplace and where your organization or your talent could fit into it. I find that's a very fascinating conversation that I hadn't considered before because, yeah, it seems like a lot of times we go into the nonprofit sector, but there's almost like a, a bit of our ego that's at play. It's almost like, I want to start my nonprofit. And then it's not even about giving back as much as it's about being recognized as someone who started a nonprofit, which kind of brings me to a topic that I know you address in the book, which is all about like toxic leadership or founders syndrome and how in nonprofit, as much as people go in saying, I'm a noble person here to give back, there seems to be a lot of egos at play. Can you open up a bit about what you've seen in the industry and how we can go about it in a healthier way? Well, it's the issue of what we call board governance, board governance and leadership. And the world did not need a book on leadership, but all the people we spoke to, almost all the people, one of the first items they brought up was leadership. And yeah, we can talk about the sins of what nonprofits don't do as well as they could. And it's the toxic leadership, the leader who, this is mine, I started this, I am the organization. And that's not necessarily they do it because they're bad people. And maybe they're very, very very effective, but it is clearly hurting the organization in the long run. So what you need to do is you need to really pay attention to your leadership. We have a chapter in the book called The Board and the CEO, The Twin Engines of the Airplane. It's absolutely true, but so many nonprofit boards operate in what we call fiduciary mode. We are fiduciaries and we have responsibility to the public. These are public benefit corporations. So we have to you know, count the money and look at the balance sheets and so forth. But that's only one mode of governance. And the solution is that the board needs to operate in three modes of governance. Another great book, it's called Reforming the Work of Nonprofit Boards by William Chait. And what he and his colleagues say in this book is the board has to spend equal time operating in three modes of governance. Fiduciary, you know, the boring stuff, necessary, but it's boring. And then two other modes. One is the mode of looking at where you are, the strategic mode, and how you're going to get there. It's been an equal time in that. And the Last one is looking at what questions should we be answering? Where are we going to be in the world in the future? And what should we be thinking about? Just not what our business plan is or our strategic plan is, but really what do we want to be looking at down the road? And I think so many boards don't operate in that particular mode. And if they did, that'd be a good reason to look out and say, you know, we really need to have our broaden our board. We need to have real representation of people, of all people in our community. If you have a nonprofit board and you don't have a good number of people in the category in the age of 25 to 35, you're probably excluding 
30% of the people in the community that you're trying to help. So these are things that you really like active board governance, I think is the answer is the, the medicine, if you will, for toxic leadership. And the people that we spoke to who operate in that fashion have really done very well. Well, I know for the people that want to go deeper into this nonprofit world, we'll definitely want to be picking up the book, Building Smart Nonprofits, A Roadmap for Mission Success. Wanted to kind of close this off with a kind of a few guidelines for the listeners here that are interested in the topic, fascinated by the changes that you're mentioning are happening in the industry, and they're wondering where they should start dipping their toes or going all in. Do you have any words of advice for people who maybe never have been on the board, want to be on the board? Is that the place to start? And is there a good way to measure what is the type of organization I should get involved with if I have extra time, extra money, and a will to make an impact? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one that I don't think folks think about enough. I think, honestly, I can say I've been approached a number of times by organizations to say, hey, we'd like you to join our board. And it's flattering. But really, I don't think that the organization thinks enough about strategically, how do we set up a board that is diverse, both in terms of background and life experiences and motivations, talents. And then from the prospective board member's standpoint, like you said, Jason, you really need to think about where your passions lie, because this is not just some trivial commitment. This is a chance to really do impactful work, to change lives, to better lives. And if you're not all in, you're taking up space for somebody who might be all in and really wanting to sit there and contribute in valuable ways. So soul searching, it sounds trite, but it really is important, especially for people who really want to have an impact on the community around them, on their fellow citizens, and do the most with the scarce resources, our time that we have. So it's something that you got to put a lot of thought into before just saying, oh yeah, sure, I'll join the board. There are ways to do it without being a full-fledged board member. You can kind of test drive boards through being on advisory committees and just kind of shaping the conversation, seeing what the organization and the current leadership is all about, and then making an informed decision as to, is this really an organization that A, needs my help, expertise, and guidance, and B, I'm very passionate about providing those resources too. If I want to start looking, like I'm hearing both of you speak, and to be honest, this is not even something that was in my radar. I mean, I'm 32 years old, but I feel like I have a lot of skills when it comes to sales and you know, I have a lot of connections. I feel like I could help a lot of nonprofits. I wouldn't even know where to look. Like I'd try to Google it, or is there some places I should be looking at building these relationships and wanting to get involved in the board? And what does it even mean to be on the board as far as time commitment and energy investment here? Well, we have a chapter, the last chapter in the book, where we have resources, free, free is good, tremendous resources are out there. And we have what we call these Magnificent Seven, where you can basically find more information than you're possibly ever going to be able to read and websites, major organizations that will help you in that process. And they have courses that you can take. They have all kinds of resources available to you. So I think that's probably the first place I would point you. All right. So we'll need to pick up a copy of the book. With that, I just wanted to say thank you so much for coming in and sharing some of these insights. I want to say that for everybody listening, it is an exciting time to be involved with the nonprofits. A lot of shift is happening, as you've heard David and Matthew mention, where a shift towards the impact is happening. It's not just about sending the money and then waiting for the impact to happen. No, a new generation is coming and wants to be more involved. And as individuals, whether we are young, old, retired, working as an entrepreneur or in a career, there's 
always a way we can get involved with organizations that are looking to make an impact. Just in San Diego, as we just heard, is over 10,000 organizations that are doing nonprofit work. How do you get curious? How do you start to care more? Whether you want to make an impact locally, globally, start doing that soul searching, as Matthew has mentioned, because a lot of the world needs help right now. There's a lot of people that are in more struggling situations. 2020 was a rough year and a lot of people are looking for that help. So what are the ways that we can give back? We're used to giving money, but then when you choose these organizations, of course, don't just look at how much of their money is spent in overhead versus the impact because these organizations need to thrive. They need to survive. They need to hire the best people to make the most impact. So really, when you look into these organizations, try to see how you can be involved with the cause. You can donate the money. You can see there's opportunities to be involved in boards, which comes with its own advantages, but get creative, get more involved, and of course, pick up a copy of Building Smart Nonprofits, A Roadmap for Mission Success, the amazing book by David and Matthew, which will give you the answers that you're looking for as you're wanting to make a bigger impact in the world. David, Matthew, thank you so much for joining me and being able to share these ideas. Everybody tuning in, thank you for giving back and continue being a superhuman. Thank you. Thanks, Jason. Once again, everybody, thanks for tuning in to Superhumans at Work. I'm very grateful for all of you who tune in on a regular basis, listening to these amazing interviews with these guests that I get to find. Now, if you're subscribed to the show, definitely leave us a review if you can and share it with friends so that we can spread the message and get more people to be able to learn of these fantastic ideas that they can bring in their everyday life. And these episodes, of course, are brought to you by Mindvalley. When you go to mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman, you get to discover the transformational education that we get to deliver where we bring the best technology, the best teachers, and ensure that it teaches you what leads to a truly incredible life. Thanks again for tuning in and watching the show. And until next time, stay superhuman. My name is Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mindvalley podcast.